0: Welcome to the Retail Exchange podcast. This episode of the Retail Exchange is brought to you in association with Attentive. Drive retail sales with text message marketing. Visit attentive.co.uk slash exchange to see what Attentive can do for you. Welcome to the latest episode of the interview series from the Retail Exchange podcast. I'm Mark Faithful. The ginascence, as some call it, has been dominating the world's spirit industry for the past decade, driven by a rise in new craft distilleries and entrepreneurs who want to change the way we make and drink gin. Celebrating its 10th anniversary in 2022, Warner's Gin has had much to do with the gin boom, reinventing this most British of spirits that until the start of the last decade had fallen out of fashion. Based on a 200-year-old farm in Northamptonshire, in central England, in just a few short years, Warner's Gin has grown to become the UK's largest independent gin brand, and one that has a constant, progressive focus on cultivating a multi-award winning product, business values and nature. In this episode, Warner walks us through the story of how he, and his then business partner, decided to launch the brand. The influence of Warner's Gin in revolutionising the group through its rhubarb flavoured gin, at the time, a first. The importance of balancing the need to do good with doing business and his own personal tales the trials and tribulations of entrepreneurial life here's the interview so tom to start with can you tell us a little bit about the warner's gin story i'll try mark so we are almost 10
1: years into the journey of trading and it was three years prior to that so really been working on the project for 13 years now and my entire life is devoted to food and drink. The golden thread that runs through this business is, is food and drink and that was growing up on a farm uh, so you're directly to connected to food manufacturing. My mum was a home economics teacher and I was blessed with meat and two veg every day uh, so that's sort of my founding. I married a farmer's daughter from Ireland. Uh, they do potatoes and crisps from their farm and her mum's a chef so literally our, our, our life is uh, devoted to, to food and drink uh, and and my career has been so I, I started off in coffee then went into produce uh, and but then um, seven years into my produce career on the side i started setting up what would be the business i was going to start which is warner's distillery and that journey began in 2009 and we didn't know what the uh, business was going to It was farm diversification back on the family farm, driving a different revenue stream through it. Um, Agriculture is a very difficult business. It's one of the only industries where you're manufacturing something with absolutely no idea what you're going to be able to sell it for. Um, So it was about securing a different income to to the farm and, uh, and, and creating a brand where we could manage the margins, the selling price, and we were the masters of our own destiny whether that was going to be successful or not. So we started looking at lots of different ideas and the penultimate idea we looked at after about six months, and I'm always envious of when you talk to an entrepreneur and they have a, a light bulb moment of, this is the business I'm gonna start. So we had to thrash and churn loads of different ideas. And I liken that with my di- dyslexic mind to, to sort of putting a Venn diagram down of all these different ideas. And actually in the middle, the last idea that went down was the, the, the distillation of floral crops to produce essential oils. We knew we were peak recession with 2009-10 during the planning, but people wanted to connect to smaller producers and the market had perversely polarized And if you remember, it's when Waitrose and Aldi and Lidl became really cool because everybody started shopping for value in two different ways. It was either the cheapest you could find or it was the best. And actually, those two sets of retailers accelerated within that space because people went out less, they were treating themselves at home. So Waitrose got a bit of a tickle, but also the discounters got a tickle because people were shopping value. But what happened within Spirits was premiumization started to happen. People wanted to connect to small producers, farmers markets were doing well all of these sort of lenses went down on the Venn diagram, the final lens being the distillation of floral crops. And we said, what can you do with the still for the rest of the year? We can make booze, why are we talking about flowers? Let's make booze, this is amazing. And the more we researched the uh, sort of spirits industry, the alcohol industry, you know, it's, it's literally intoxicating but it's also intoxicating in terms of, we are helping people celebrate. We are helping people relax and unwind. We are the fuel that created humanity. It enabled selfish apes with a prefrontal cortex that would keep them quite moody to actually let the guard down, socialize, build communities. So, you know, the spirits and alcoholic industries has built civilization. very exciting industry to come and get involved in. We had no contacts, we had no money, we knew no one in the industry, um, and they were our our advantages, really, because we came in with a completely blank book. Uh, The initial business plan, we were gonna distill everything, rum, whiskey, tequila, brandy, and you know, you, you go on a journey then of, okay, they've all got different ingredients, they've all got different process, they've all got different aging requirements, and we realized very early on, because we were doing this on a shoestring, we were not going to be able to put something in a barrel and leave it there for three years until we sold it because we'd gone bust before we got to the sale. So we had to manufacture something that we could sell immediately. That left us with white spirits. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, we initially looked at vodkas because at the time, vodka was about four times the size of gin, but had plateaued. Uh, gin was much smaller, but in 8% growth. So that was the insight, and also gin is more British, albeit we stole it from the Europeans and made it better with our London dry style. Um, But it is about being a foodie, it's about recipe development, it's about flavour, and the countryside around the farm was full of natural ingredients that we could use in the gin. We've got our own natural springs on the farm, which would be fantastic for distilling. So combining all of those elements, the obvious thing to go for was gin, Little did we know that gin was going to have the renaissance uh, that it's had. But that's cause and effect. I think more interesting businesses like us got involved in the industry um, and we created that trend. You know, we you, it, that's the consumer trends are driven by the people that have created the products, right? And I think it was a self-fulfilling prophecy that gin exploded, more exciting producers came in. The, the real story is the little guys like us legitimized all the crap that the big guys make. So they've, they've dined out on craft gin uh, and have made you know, replica products that are not made the same way, do not have the same ingredient standards or principles. They're value engineered liquids, but it's up to us little guys to continue pushing that quality agenda within the category. So very long story. That's how we, we started
0: in gin. I was going to say actually that it's a little bit difficult to remember now because there's been such a proliferation of, of gin brands whether that be the big boys or lots of craft makers from all over the country but when you were talking about founding it actually there were only a few gin producers and it was it was a fledgling business albeit that gin is intrinsic with the UK culture
1: 100% it was dominated by multinationals you know all everything was being made in huge factories pouring this stuff out and their only interest was making it as efficiently as possible. Um, at, when we did, when we were doing the business planning, we thought no one had thought of this, genuinely. And I remember being in Westminster Library in London. It was the only place I could get a Mintel report for free on the white spirits market. So I'm in there furiously scribbling notes. And there was a section on the new craft movement within the UK. And it had uh, listed Chase and Sipsmiths had just started. They were both about a year old. No one knew about them. We didn't know about them. They were embryonic and we like penned down, It's it's been done, we can't do it. Um, Flipped the page and saw that white spirits in the UK is worth four billion. So we thought, all right, that's enough for everybody to have a a row at. Little did we know the amount of people that have got involved in the industry now. Um, The party was 2018. I think if you weren't at the table in that year, you're definitely gonna struggle to get outside of the, the local area that you're in. 250 new distilleries launched in lockdown. So it's 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 something that's still exploding, still diluting. Because the other sad fact is, craft is only ever going to be one to two percent of the market. So the more people that come into that space, we're just all cutting uh, each other's throats over that small share of the volume. So it's interesting times. Um, it's been great for gin. I think it's caused a huge amount of fervour across the country and an increase in consumption. Um, but yeah, it's the big boys. The big boys always win, don't they?
0: I'm going to fast forward to the future before we go back to the beginning again. But as you've just explained, you know, you started in a fledgling market. You're now in a position where there's this massive proliferation of gin. And in fact, there's a lot of gins coming in from outside the UK as well now, isn't there? So how, having now established a brand, do you you keep there when there are so many new names coming in all the time?
1: I think, you know, we were there at the start and we've evolved as a business. So you launch, we launched a business to save the world from mediocre gin and make the best London dry gin in the world. Accidentally, we created the flavoured gin explosion from the farm, and that was unintentional. That was just nature was our inspiration and our gut was our guide. And we did process that no one else was doing, which was adding additional flavour at the end of the distillation, but natural flavour. So, None of the flavorings that everyone else seems to use. We use Mother Nature, so our elderflower gin was the first one. That was my mum came into the kitchen as we were developing our first London dry gin, and she put elderflower into a London dry gin post-distillation with a little bit of sugar, so it's slightly sweeter and really floral, and, and wasn't a crystal clear gin like all the other London dries in the market. So it had a different color, different flavor profile, slightly sweeter, and we were like, right, well, that's product number two sorted, thanks mum. Um, so I, I like to say that my mum created the flavoured gin explosion in the UK because that led to our rhubarb gin. Rhubarb was the wonder product for us, Elderflower did an amazing job. The rhubarb gin, you know, a third of every bottle is rhubarb juice. I say that intentionally because all other rhubarb gins, there's no rhubarb in it, it's it's synthetically flavoured stuff. So. We, you know, we, we use Mother Nature, it's very masochistic, but these are the products that, that set us apart, changed the category for the retailers, established our footprint, but we've gone on to embed, and uh, uh, hand on heart, we were not ESG focused when we first launched, we were just trying to get the wheels spinning, but as you grow as a business, you reflect on your role within nature, you know, and without nature, we, we don't have business, and that goes for nearly everything, that we do in the world without food. You know, if we destroy the biodiversity we have on this planet, the climate crisis is one issue. A bigger problem than climate change is actually uh, nature depletion within the UK. Um, And that's where, for the last five years, we've had a conservation and sustainability manager work full-time in the business. We are a small business. We've got one person whose entire remit is to be our moral compass and help us be a better business Tread lighter on the land be carbon neutral where we can be uh, reduce our carbon footprint we've got a load of initiatives we're doing with carbon farming and carbon sequestration at the farm but also our overarching vision now is to be the most nature positive drinks business in the world now that's lofty because we're small and you know we are distributed in in a few countries but we're not one of the big players so Can we move the dial? I I don't really care. If we can influence and inspire and change thinking on the journey, that's the role that we want to play. Uh, And it is about nature positivity. The UK is in the bottom 13% of nature-depleted countries in the world, and actually England is in the bottom 7%. So we are disgraceful on a planetary scale, our little island. We are butchering it to death. We need to do better. So. How are we still standing toe to toe with the big guys? It's through initiatives like that. Um, We're currently working with Green King, biggest pub retailer in the country. And we're developing a thing called the Warner's Nature's Mark in conjunction with the Wildlife Trust. And this will be an accreditation that pubs, and it's it's not isolated to Green King. We're starting with them, but we're going to be rolling this out. And it could even work in the off-trade sphere as well. Um, But this is, sites will have a set of criteria to work to, where they can actually use it as a framework to become more nature positive as a business, create habitat, be more biodiverse. We will give them official accreditation. I mean, who are we? We're a little distillery in Northamptonshire. But these are the tools that give us conversations beyond price with major retailers and that's i think you've always got to be nimble as a distillery. as i said we did launch with esg at the heart it was 2015 that we really started to put esg at the heart of the business and um it's definitely giving us an edge
0: now with retailers for sure well it's interesting that we're talking rather than it being harvard educated person who's focused on global domination that an accidental gym producer becomes an accidental environmentalist you talked a lot about perhaps some of the advantages of that naivety at the beginning, Yeah. what were the challenges? Because obviously you went into a market that you didn't know anything about. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a tsunami of challenges. You start a business
1: and just little things, like if you haven't bought any pens, you haven't got any pens. So just starting something that's not in existence, you have to breathe life into every single facet of the business. So that in itself is a challenge. Um, All the equipment that you need, working out how to do a process, but the challenges change, so you've got really functional challenges at the start, which is about you know setting up the operation uh, and then starting to sell, making sure it's safe, compliant, uh, et cetera, build up your customer base, you then start employing people. As soon as you start employing people, there's even more challenges because you've got to make sure that everyone's pointing in the right direction, they're aligned, um, that, they, that they are living and breathing the values of the business. I mean, developing a set of values for a business it just in itself is, is actually a really, really, really hard thing to do. We, we, it's taken us four years of chewing this stuff to actually come out with the values that we've got now. Um, and there's two sets of values within our business. One that we want um, everybody to live and breathe in terms of how they interact with each other in the world. And the others are our ESG values of doing the right thing. I think one of the greatest challenges is, is financing. You know, we, we bootstrap this business from the start um we uh, we're up against multi-billion valuation marketing machines that have you know expert teams of manufacturing um can ship stuff through their networks all over the world really efficiently we started we bootstrapped it um, it was done on a shoestring and we were hand to mouth from the start of the business and we've had to live within the means of the cash flow of the business from the start which in itself is difficult when you're trying to grow a brand because As we all know, if you are growing a brand, you've got to tell the world because the world doesn't care about you. That's the sad thing. You can be making the most amazing product. And this is probably one of the most distressing things for any founder of a business, especially if you're manufacturing something because you think it is the best thing in the world since sliced bread. The world does not care. Uh, You have to shake them and make them care and tell them about what you're doing. And that's the really hard thing. And to do that within the cash flow of a business, It was excruciating uh, and we had we had a number of close calls over the years. Um, 2016 was a crescendo luckily in the Shard, which is just over the water from where we are. I won the HSBC elevator pitch, um, which was basically one minute to pitch to the great good of HSBC and a load of other founders. Um, And we got 150 grand, no strings, cash injection to the business, which was saved the day because we were, we were trading that hard that the cash cycle of the business was becoming very difficult. So that gave us much needed liquidity at the time. Um, but yeah, I suppose it's, it's telling the world is, is the hardest thing. And um, I think the next hardest thing is just managing a team of people and getting them all rowing in the right direction and being aligned and not infighting or silos being created and all of it. It's the hardest part of running a business is the people. But I feel like we're in a very good place, but it's taken a lot of work to get into that space.
0: My conversation with our guest on this episode of the Retail Exchange is brought to you by Attentive. You can't have a conversation with this ad, but with text message marketing, you can. Attentive lets you launch and optimize a new mobile marketing channel, interact with your customers where they are through personalized and real time conversations with powerful results. Attentive drives billions in e-commerce revenue for over 5,000 brands globally. See what Attentive can do for you at attentive.co.uk slash exchange. Attentive, drive retail sales with text message marketing. Winning the HSBC pitch is obviously a, a turning point or a pivotal moment. Were there others, were there particular points in time that you can really look back on and go, you know, we've really created this success out of that happening? Good or bad, in fairness? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's good and
1: bad littered along the way. It, it, any, anyone that says they got it right first time, we are a succession of failures uh, that create the business that we are today. I, I started this business with my best mate. My wife and I run it now. Sean and I started the business together, and in 2016, he resigned quite early. I think, were we aligned? It turned out we probably weren't fully aligned on, on vision of where we were going. The business was really starting to heat up. The stakes were getting higher. He had a young family, and he took a decision to move away from the business. Convinced him to stay for two more months, and then he then he actually finally left. Um, so that was a really sad moment for me because you start something with a with a friend, and it's it was um, not acrimonious uh, in fairness the when the departure, but it, it's just life. It's one of those things, and 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 people grow apart and things change. So that was a massively pivotal moment. It also, that enabled decision making to speed up and we could make changes a lot quicker after that. So that was one positive. The massive negative is the, the emotional trauma that, that, that goes hand in hand with that. Um, positives were, yeah, I mean, the rhubarb gin and the elderflower gin and the flavoured stuff that we did were, you know, it changed gin globally. Put us on the map, made the shareholders of all of the PLCs that copied it Uh, 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 very, very wealthy as well, Um, but it was, you know, accidental success turns luck into genius as a a phrase. And you'll get a lot of founders that sort of think that they're God's gift, Well, a lot of the time, yeah, you've got to put yourself in the situation, but then there is an element of luck that really takes you to the next level. So I think we were lucky to have started when we started. We were lucky to have produced the products that we produced. Were they scalable? No. I mean, it was 2016 was horrific. When the rhubarb gin took off, the liquid just did not behave, and I would be found in the mixing room trying to blend rhubarb gin, crying uh, on the floor, like just distraught, semi-suicidal, having a breakdown. You know, it was, it was horrific times because it was selling, it wouldn't manufacture properly. We had to put a lot of science and R and D into to, to the liquid. It was pectin was our enemy, which when combined with ethanol um, turns to jam. Uh, But when we started making it, this all sank to the bottom of the tanks or rose to the top. 2016, just as it all took off, it turned to smoke within and we couldn't filter it. So it was an absolute bloody nightmare. Um, But you have to deal with these problems and, and, and get through. And there are dark days, you know, starting a business for me has been the most amazing and most horrific thing I've ever done in my, it's visceral. You can go from extreme high to extreme low within minutes of each other, depending on what's happening during that day. So it's, it's a real roller coaster ride of emotion.
0: Um, and there's been lots of highs and lows on the, on the journey. It sounds counterintuitive, but certainly what you're talking about, you know, brings across that actually growth can often be one of the biggest challenges because, you know, you start small and that is its own thing getting larger you've already talked about some of the production issues are actually horrendous at a time when you're growing you know the people issues a particularly personal one in your case but mm-hmm. you know a larger company is very different to run from a smaller company when maybe you know the six people that work there and now you've suddenly got people who've arrived that possibly don't have the same vision as you and you've got to learn to manage them that is quite a process to go through i'm sure it, it, it is it is a
1: process it's you know, there was a point where I almost knew where every single bottle was sold. I had a personal relationship with every customer. We sold two. Um, we had a team of about 16 at that. I think that when I, when I started to not know exactly where everything was, it was about when we got to about 16 people. Um, and I'm an expert, and again, it's my dyslexic brain of spinning the plates, we call it, which is trying to balance all of these, but it, it gets to a point where it gets beyond you And luckily my wife came in and she is very structure, process, she'd worked in private equity for 15 years, helicopter view of businesses and strategy and structure. So she was like a mini PE fund coming into the business and actually delivering that structure. Um, And we've gone to, we're just over 50 people in the team now. I, I call the business a cult because it, it tends to be like people get so invested in what we're doing because it's, it's booze, it's exciting. We're a high growth entrepreneurial business. You get to spend time with the founders quite a lot of the time. So it can become quite intoxicating for people. Um, we've actually had to bring in measures to almost calm people down. We do a thing called golden hour now. Uh, and every now and again, I'll do a comedy radio announcement where I'll I'll play a song or someone will have picked a song that I'll play over WhatsApp with a message. Hi, it's Gold Now with Tom Warner. And uh, Mark's called in from production today at his request. We do this, remember to get some headspace. And it's like forcing people to actually put the tools down for that hour, whatever you're doing, whatever you've got on your plate, um, and uh, just try and refresh your head. Because, you know, mental health, the last two years... It's been very difficult working from home has caused people to work far more hours than they were doing in an office and actually probably be more isolated and more focused without distractions and the general chit chat and camaraderie that happens in the office environment. So, um, yeah, as the team scales, the problems change and, and you also have to rely on your leadership team to help with that because as a founder... I'm an idiot for always thinking that I have to solve all the problems and actually I pay people a lot more than I get paid who are better at that than me as well. So it's relying on those skill sets and doing your superpower
0: within the business. Talking of skill sets, at the beginning you talked a lot about the intrinsic position of the farm in terms of what you produce, why you produce, why you're different. Are there lessons that retail could learn from farming do you think in terms of the way it works? I think the farm anchors us in the environment, which has
1: really steered our ESG agenda. And trying to work symbiotically with nature is just what we do on a daily basis now. Uh, I think, depending on the retailer, they've all got their own agendas within that. Uh, I think the off-trade guys are probably more advanced, because I remember going back 12 years, ESG was really starting to be a a red hot topic there. And I think they've put a lot in place. There's still a long way to go to try and mitigate their impact on the world as much as they can. But they're selling products manufactured by thousands of different businesses with thousands of different um, uh, views on whether they want to be environmental or not. Um, I think our, our ethos is that Nature's our business, you know, without nature, we don't have a business. And I think that should be the ethos of every business in the country. We've just signed up to the Better Business Act. Um, And that um, is really to try and force the government to put in legislation to to actually consider that a triple bottom line of not just profitability, but social and environmental cost of doing business. Um, And I think if we can force all businesses to do that, put the environment and and social responsibility at the heart of what you're doing, it will be a much better world and we'll still have a world to do
0: business in, in the future. Tom, if I can finish off by asking you two different questions about the future, one personal and one business-wise, what can we expect from Warners going forwards? And secondly, how about you? What continues to drive you and what continues to get up and feel happy that you're in the gin industry? Um, so
1: for, for the business we've we've obviously got great international growth ambition um, we want to take the brand uh, around the world we're in 30 markets currently but in a very small way our, our um, biggest export market weirdly is Australia uh, which is the other side of the planet um, and it's it's balancing that with our mission to be the most nature positive drinks business in the world as well. So it how do you mitigate? the impact you're having on the planet whilst doing that. And we're building that process and we've got a lot of new initiatives going live now, the Nature's Mark being one of them, uh, and a lot of other uh, carbon offsetting schemes that we're doing at the farm. Um, um, And on a personal note, I live and breathe talking to people, uh, spreading the gospel. And if I can, as, uh, uh, as a founder, influence more people to start awesome businesses that solve society's problems, then that's going to be a magic thing for me to do and uh, go around the world helping people do the same thing. That's kind of the vibe I want to get into in, over the next few
0: years is helping other founders do good and maybe do a little bit of charity work as well. That's fantastic. Well, look, Tom, I think we need to thank you and obviously we need to thank your mum for the Eldie Flower and Sugar inspiration yeah. that helped start it all. Um, it's an amazing story, good luck with it all and good luck with your ambitions going forwards. Pleasure Mark, thanks for having me. Thank you. This episode of The Retail Exchange was brought to you in association with Attentive. Drive retail sales with text message marketing. Visit attentive.co.uk slash exchange to see what Attentive can do for you. You've been listening to The Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at the retail and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag retail exchange. Thanks for listening.